Amen. Amen. Thanks. Uh, let's give these guys a round of applause. And uh, why don't you all stand with me real quick? We're going to read scripture together and we're going to jump right in. So open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to just read verses 1 and 2, and then uh, we'll jump right into the teaching here this morning. So First Peter 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the knowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of, with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Why don't you all grab a seat? Let me pray real quick as uh, we jump in. Jesus, again, this morning we turn our hearts to you. We need you. So God, help my words to be precise and succinct and seasoned with grace. Uh, speak to us here this morning, God. That's why we're here, because we love you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started a series several weeks ago in this great book called First Peter. And uh, if you have not been reading through the book of First Peter, no shame on you. No shame on you. My invitation for you would be to begin to read this great book. It literally will take you 20 minutes from start to finish, uh, just in a sitting. Um, or if that's too much, then just take a chapter a day. It'll probably be, you know, what, three, four minutes or so of your time. Should not take that long. Um, and to help you, if you guys need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to quickly usher you a Bible. Um, to uh, engage with what we're just simply describing as the First Peter resource guide. It's something that I created. It's sort of an assembly of some of the best of the best information to help equip you not only read the Bible in general, but also to read the book of First Peter in specific. So uh, the name of this series that we've been uh, going through is we're just calling it Suffering and Glory um, because this book actually uh, taps into the larger subject matter of what it means to suffer um, in this life under certain pressures within the context of certain challenges and hardships, um, but ultimately with the aim of being transformed by God's God's goodness, God's glory, God's presence, um, and that's the big aim of this great book. And so my invitation to you would be to just read it, to study it, to savor it, to meditate upon it, to think about it, to make it a part of your daily practice. And so that as we gather as a church family on Sunday mornings, you would have already been kind of stewing on it, thinking about it, simmering on it in your heart and soul throughout the whole week. So um, what I want to look at this morning specifically in the little bit of time that we have here is I want to just begin by asking the question. Um, and these questions, I would say, are, are absolutely essential to our existence, to our thriving. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that if there is any ambiguity in terms of how you answer these questions, you will either be languishing in your life or flourishing. All based upon how you think about, how you process, how you answer these questions. The questions are pretty simple. It's this. Number one, who are you? Who are you? If I were to ask you to write down, who are you? Give me the top one, top three answers. If you want, you can write that down. That's fine. Who are you? How do you answer that? Oftentimes, uh, the way that we answer that 
is connected to the job that we have. But what happens if you lose your job? <laughs> then who are you? Uh, the answer, if you're a mother, you might be like, I'm a mother. What happens when your kids get older and no longer a part of your life or you're an empty nester? What happens if somehow that relationship severs or breaks or becomes dysfunctional? What happens then? What if your answer is I'm a husband? What happens if you get a divorce? Then who are you? Do you, re- do you realize how, how important and how significant this is? Because if any of these identities that we oftentimes affix to ourselves break or fragment or fall apart, then we break, fragment, and fall apart with them. These are, this, I'm, just, I'm just trying to create some logical connections here for us to consider and think about. These answers and how we answer these questions are so essential. But then the second part of this question plays into this as well, which is uh, where do you fit in? Or another way to put it is where do I belong? And like I said, how you answer these two questions are so essential in terms of your your thriving or flourishing or your languishing or your brokenness. And I would even suggest that these are questions that are front central in every human being throughout all ages, but especially in today's world, that we need to understand what these are. And what I want to suggest to you is what we just read in this passage. Uh, Peter wants to pull back the veil and say, this is exactly who you are. And I would say to the degree that you either imbibe, embrace, receive this identity— um, or are ignorant to it, or reject it, or turn away from it, or are just unaware of it, you will either flourish in your understanding of life and your existence, or you, you will just languish, and you'll leapfrog from identity to identity, or just endlessly scroll or swipe right until you are able to find someone or something that you can associate with and identify with and anchor your identity or your place of belonging into. But again, when that breaks and you'll just leapfrog into something else and keep that whole thing going on cycle, oftentimes it's just a broken cycle over and over and over again. What I want to invite you into is to think about the identity that Jesus is offering to us, receive it as a gift, because that's exactly what it is, and let's just let Peter take us on this journey, because I think what he offers to us is so significant. Again, I just want to reiterate, I want to break it down into basically three, maybe four elements, and we will wrap this up. So what I want to begin by is reading just a little quote by a biblical scholar who has a commentary on first peter uh, her name is Catherine gonzalez here's what she said she wrote human beings always have the task of understanding their identity they may identify themselves by who their parents are what tribe or nation they belong to who their spouses or children are what their occupation is and so forth Some may even claim they themselves have created their own identity. They are, quote-unquote, self-made. And however limited even these false views such as this are, it is still a way of understanding who they are, what their identity is. At the very beginning of this letter, 1 Peter, the task of the writer is to show the readers who they are, what their identity is in God's eyes. Whatever that identity is, they are God's redeemed people. 
So if you're a follower of Jesus here today, if you are committed to Christ, if you've accepted Jesus in your heart, you're going to heaven when you die. Again, I like to say there's a host of ways in which you can identify or think about that. But what I want to remind you this morning, your truest identity as to who you are is, is exactly what you just read. In case you forgot, I want to go back again and just think about it and simmer it on that and let that become sort of the meditation of our heart. So with that being said, um, we will look at basically three major, in fact, I would even say three major, major theological terms. Um, in fact, if you want to write these terms down next time you're at a party, uh, you whip out these terms, you will sound ex- very, very, very smart. So here they are. Number one, we will think about the word election. Number two, redemption. Number three, sanctification. Let's, let's say those real quick. So election, say it election redemption all right and then good job last one is sanctification so remember those words next time again at a party or you're hanging out in line at your local coffee shop you just throw those words out you'll sound extraordinarily smart so what i want to do is i want to think about these because these are words that peter gives us to think about um really important words for us to think about and the way he's going to break this down for us is he breaks it down for us in a context of what i would describe as the trinity uh the one god who is a complex character meaning he is identified as god the father god the son and god the holy spirit Christians, historically, have always been uh, monotheists, meaning we believe in one God. But this one God, we believe, has displayed himself, revealed himself in three distinct uh, uh, forms or nature, characters, if you want to think of it that way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what Peter does is he identifies or breaks it down like this. So we'll look at three things. Number one, we'll see that the Father elects. The Father elects. There's our word election. Secondly, we'll take a look at Jesus being the Redeemer. In other words, the word redemption. Thirdly, we'll take a look at how the Spirit Holy Spirit sanctifies. And there's where we get the word sanctification or separation or being made holy. So again, we have a lot of terrain to cover, very limited amount of time. These are massively huge, enormous theological terms. Uh, we will not do justice to each one of them this morning, but we will be covering these over and over again thematically throughout the entire book of Peter. So with that, I want to jump right in and take a look at how the Father elects. Again, these are not my words. These are the words that Peter himself uses. Listen to it again. He says, uh, you are elect exiles. So there's your identity. Again, if you forgot or you were not here last week, I would highly recommend checking out the message. We talked about what it meant to be an elect exile, why that was so essential to framing and forming your actual identity. Now, what he's going to begin to describe is you are elect exiles according to this election of God the Father. Here's what he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The particular word that he uses there is uh, the pro, prognosis. We actually get the English word. Guess what English word we get from there? Prognosis. Prognosis. It's literally the exact same word. Prognosis. Prognosco. The idea of knowing something before ahead of time. Now, this particular Greek word can be used in one or two ways. One, it could be simply termed as knowing a fact before something happens. In other words, you know something about an event or situation that's going to happen before it actually happens. That's prognosis. Another way in which this word is used throughout the New Testament is another little kind of format of that, which is knowing a people or a person uh, in a loving fatherly knowledge, meaning loving someone even before that someone even knows 
that they have been loved. And this is the way that Peter seems to be utilizing this. I'll give you a couple ways uh, by which this kind of plays out. So according to the foreknowledge, this phrase suggests, according to God's fatherly care, you, even before the world was framed, were known by God. This concept of election, sadly, throughout the history of the Christian church, has become so unfortunately debated. It should not be debated. It should never be debated. It is a biblical teaching that just simply says that God himself chooses. God selects. God knows. God is aware. God has placed his affection upon you even before you were even known or even before you even knew God. God chose you. God loves you. Now, I'll just tell you straight up front, and I'm not going to go into this, but if you have questions about this, I'm happy to answer questions because I realize for most of you probably aren't going to really stumble over this or have issues with this or not even really care about it, but others of you, you might. And if you have, if you're part of that segment of people that have concerns, please talk to me. I'm happy to give you some more further information. But one of the main reasons why this becomes controversial is because of our way that we typically think through things. We think, well, if God chose some to be part of his family, then does that mean, or does that mean, or by way of an affirmation, that must mean that God has also chosen some to eternal damnation. And this is where it gets extraordinarily complicated. And I would even say begins to degenerate into false ideas and concepts that begin to create incredible chaos and struggles for many people. Again, that might be you. And I want to, I want to be sensitive to that. I would love to talk with you and chat with you. I have some good information. I would love to share with you. If you would like, you can come talk to me immediately afterwards. But the big point that I want to make is just settling our minds upon the reality that the fact that God chose fact of election, we just had an election where the voice, the vote came in. And again, I'm not going to get into whether it was debated or not, but the point of the matter is that's the general idea or theme of what an election is. Somebody chooses and that becomes basically the standard. This is the same idea that God chose from before the foundations of the earth people to belong to him. This is an absolutely beautiful reality because what it means, God selected, God called, God invited you. God did not do this because you are lovable. Please understand this. All of us have fallen short of God's goodness, God's standards, God's glory, uh, as the scripture teaches. But nonetheless, even in the spite of ourselves, God lovingly calls and invites us to be part of his own family. Listen to how the same word actually plays out within a couple other passage, passages. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, For those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. There's that phrase. For those whom he foreknew, that's the exact word, foreknew, uh, prognoskos. Uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, listen to how this plays out in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Why has God not forsaken his people or rejected his people? Because he foreknew them. This is kind of covenantal language. It's the idea that God will never, ever, 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 ever fail you. Do, you. do you understand? Just pause right now and just think about, reflect upon that. Because he loves you. He's committed to you. 
This is this should be mind shocking because throughout the ages, any form of religion has usually always kind of been built around this framework of you be faithful to that God, and as you are faithful to that God, to provide your sacrifices, to give your you know your firstborn, or to make your offerings, or to give your incense, or whatever. As you are faithful to that God, then that God will be faithful to you. This is the exact opposite. This is God saying, even though you are unfaithful to me, I will never, ever not be unfaithful to you because I love you. This is an amazing twist in the narratives for gods. <laughs> this, is, this is a God that's unlike any other God that stands unrivaled by any other God. That's a good God that loves us, that gives himself to us. Listen to how this plays out in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, this is a sermon, this Jesus that's, that was delivered up according to the definite foreknowledge of God. You crucified, you killed by hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the idea that God himself knew of the plan of Jesus. One more, just for good measure. First, uh, uh, Second Peter, sorry, Second Timothy, chapter two, verse nineteen says, "As God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal, the Lord loves those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." The big idea that He's trying to convey here is that God calls people to belong to Him. So, I would just encourage you to think about it real quick: Do you belong to God? Do you belong to God? Is your heart loyal to him? I'm not asking, are you a perfect? Are you a perfect Christian? There's no such thing. They don't exist. And if they do exist, be highly, highly suspicious of them because they're probably not very good Christians. The point that I would make is this, is that God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for people that in the midst of their brokenness have received his good favor, his love, his grace is the word that's used there. So I want to skip on to the next one. First of all, we saw that the father elects. We're told again in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, God calls people to belong to him. Secondly, we see that Jesus redeems. I'm going to skip ahead to kind of the, the third phrase in verse 2. It says, for the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. So we'll come back to the little segment in between, referring to the Spirit. But I want to think about this because he uses this phrase, sprinkling of his blood. If you're like me, there's been times I read my Bible and I have to read things like four, five, six, ten times over. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means. This is using a language and vocabulary that's completely foreign to me. And that shouldn't be shocking to us. Um, by the way, just this should not be, you know, brain science. But the fact of the matter is the Bible is a 2000 minimum 2000 year old document. It is not going to use language like, hey, bro. You should be suspicious of a translation that's like, what's up, bro? Like, that's, that's not modern language. The, the Bible is an ancient text. So therefore, when we approach the Bible, we need to approach it on its level. So that means that there's going to be phrases in the Bible that aren't going to make any sense to us. And we shouldn't be shocked by that. We shouldn't try to explain that away. But what we should do is be good archaeologists, right? Do the best we can to try to understand what, what does that phrase mean in its context? How would that phrase have been meant or understood by first century readers? Because that's the initial audience. So this phrase, for example, sprinkled with his blood, if that Troubled any of you? You're just like, what in the world does that mean? That sounds so foreign. Because it is. It is. It's totally foreign. But the big idea is it's a reference to an Old Testament uh, worldview that describes this world sacrifices. 
Uh, you, those who are sinful, those who are guilty, those who stand before God needing to bring a sacrifice for their sin, uh, they would bring this sacrifice before the Lord, and then the Lord would receive them. This is the exact same vocabulary and language that Peter's using to describe Jesus. But in this context, it's not Jesus bringing a sacrifice of an animal. It's Jesus bringing himself. Jesus being the one who then makes himself through his life, makes you acceptable through him. This this is the big idea, that God sees you through the lens of Jesus. God receives you, if you want to put it in this context, in the same way that he receives his son. So the question is, how does God receive his son? Is God standoffish? Is God passive-aggressive with Jesus? Is God play games with Jesus? On one hand, is God just like all friendly and kind and huggy with Jesus? Another time, he turns his back. He's prickly and he's questionable in terms of his... Never. God is always enthusiastically alive with love towards Jesus. Which raises the question, how is God towards you if you are in Jesus? Oh, (laughs) the same enthusiastically alive with love for you. Why? On what basis? The sprinkling of the blood. Jesus' crucifixion. This is what the reference is to. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes this. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 24. Uh, It says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Here's the phrase. The sprinkled blood speaks a better word. Again, Old Testament language. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, and then we'll skip on the next one. Uh, it says this, so if you want to read a little bit further in the chapter, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has made what was made manifest in this last time for your sake. And through him, there's a big phrase, through him, you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love for one another earnestly from a pure heart. The big idea that he's describing is that our salvation is not something that we earned. If you want to think of it this way, the big, big question is, how is somebody going to save the world, right? Let's just start small here. How do we save the world? Well, do you realize every politician has a framework to how to save, how to save the world? You know that, right? Philosophy is an attempt to figure out how do we save our world. Politics is an attempt to how do we save the world. The left has a version of that. The right has a version of that. If you were to ask the bigger question, what's the vision? Libertarians have a version of how to save the world. If you were to ask God, God, how do you save the world? God would say, the way I save the world, the plan is revealed through Jesus. It's a pleasant thing about that. By way of contrast, Jesus is self-emptying, others-focused love. Self-emptying, giving up of himself, not demanding his rights, giving up his rights. Not making an appeal to the Constitution, but that's not bad. But saying, my loyalty is to the Father and the Father's plan And in this context, the Father's plan is me to lay aside my rights, self-emptying, others-focused, affection, devotion, and love. That's what Jesus does. He lays his life down for others. Do you realize, again, in contrast to that, 
all other forms of politics. Again, take your pick. Left, right, center. It doesn't really matter. All of them have their own form of Game of Thrones. All of them are another version of the same game of power. How do we use, wield, exercise, manipulate, spread, share, possess, protect, militarize the power that we have? In other words, the contrast is this, self-interested party-focused devotion. Do you hear what I said? Self-interested, party-focused devotion versus self-emptying, others-focused love. The two couldn't be more contrasting. The big point is this, is that Jesus redeems. Jesus represents the very heart of the Father and how God attempts and has attempted and has brought about the salvation of this world. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow Every tongue will confess that he alone is God. It's a radically different plan than the plans that we see laid out in front of us in this world. This is why Christians, my invitation to you is to live a distinctive life from the other versions, the other narratives, the other formats uh, that are available to us in this world. Christians ought to be distinct in terms of what narrative or plan of rescue in the passage of chapter one verse two he says this in the sanctification of the spirit now again if you're anything like me and you read big words like this you are like what in the world does that mean because i guarantee most of you probably did not wake up this morning and you threw out the word sanctification in any phrase any sentence this morning right because we just don't use that word sanctification you're like i feel unsanctified today like nobody talks like that but again, it's a Bible word, and it's a Bible word that comes from 2,000 years ago. And because we're followers of Jesus, we want to at least familiarize ourselves with some of this terminology and language so that we could become people that are devoted to Jesus. So the word sanctified just basically means set apart, devoted, someone who is devoted to something or some other uh, entity in this particular context. It's God transforming us by way of our hearts being coming loyal to him. There's a pastor by the name of Charles Simeon. He said, this the spirit originally breathed upon the face of the waters and reduced the chaotic mess into order and beauty such a beautiful line and reduced the chaotic mess into into order and beauty so does he move upon a believer's soul whoever is or whatever is corrupt he mortifies puts to death Whatever is wanting, he supplies. Above all, he reveals the Savior to the soul and thereby changes the soul progressively into the Savior's image. The big idea here is that the Holy Spirit, the very one that was there present in Genesis chapter 1, described as one that was hovering over the face of the deep, bringing order to the chaotic mess, is the very Spirit that's in your life right now. You say, I don't feel it. You don't need to feel it to know that it's there. That's what faith is is by definition that even though you don't feel the spirit's presence even though you're not even aware of the spirits the spirit is still there bringing order out of your chaos and i would suggest to the degree that you experience the electing love of god the redeeming work of jesus and the sanctifying power of the holy spirit what that will do is it will bring about a sense of hope within your heart. And in closing, again, I want to finish with this question. Who are you? Who are you? To whom do you belong? Where are your loyalties being devoted? 
Because how you answer that question will play into whether or not you flourish as a human being or whether or not you languish as a human being. My hope, my hope for you, my prayer for you would be that you would flourish by receiving this identity. Again, none of us, this concept of identity, we find ourselves in a benign state. We have to have an identity. We have to have a place of belonging. We cannot just lay still without it. We will find and search endlessly until we get it. The options presented to us is that we are out either giving away ourselves, selling our souls in order to receive an identity or to receive some place of belonging, or we are receiving from God by grace the gift that he's given to us by being designated as elect, chosen by God, loved by God, exiles in this world because of the redemption of Jesus by the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And the beauty of this, in closing, is to just by way of reminder, the team that you are on, the family that you belong to, just pause and think about this. This is not just a family that began in 1970 or 1990 or even like six years ago. Christianity and the foundation of all who have been faithful to God are called by God. And transformed by God's power goes way back, anchored deeply into the very narrative of this very, very, very ancient book that we call the Bible that we hold to. Just think about this. If you are a follower of Jesus today, if you have been called by this God that loves you, you belong to the same family that part of this lineage is a guy by the name of Moses. If you remember Moses, Moses was the greatest emancipator of slaves of all time. You think William Wilberforce was awesome. You think MLK was amazing. Moses, Moses, the greatest emancipator of slaves, released a nation of close to three million slaves by God's power. Uh, you're part of the family of Hannah, who in the midst of her barrenness was not able to conceive, longing, asking God to give her a child. She conceived by faith, by God's grace, God gave her a gift. You're part of the family of a guy by the name of Elijah, one of the greatest of all prophets, withstood hundreds of these prophets of Baal, these false prophets, and stood against them, proclaimed, preached God's word, and was able to withstand them. You're part of the family of a guy by the name of Stephen, who after Jesus resurrected into heaven, there's a guy by the name of Stephen who was just a follower of Jesus, nobody super great. He wasn't really much even spoken about him in the New Testament. But here he was standing in front of the greatest powerhouses of all authority within Judaism. And he's preaching to them the message of Jesus and ultimately to the point where he disrupts their peace. They get so angry with him, they actually end up killing him. You're part of his family. You're also part of the family of a guy by the name of Polycarp, who in between the dates of AD 69 all the way up to around AD 55, when he was 86 years old, 86 years old, this, he wouldn't have known Jesus, but he was devoted to Jesus. As an 86-year-old man, he was arrested by the Roman guards, and they said, look, we're all we're asking you to do, 86-year-old old man, is to deny Jesus. And Polycarp, if you're familiar with this story, says, here's what he says, 86 years old, have I served Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And ultimately, they end up putting him to death, 
at the stake. He doesn't die by way of fire. They stab him. His blood puts out the fire, and then they kill him. 86-year-old man, he is in your family. You're part of the family of a lady by the name of Perpetua. She's 22 years old. She just had a child. She's from North Africa. She was an early follower of Jesus around 203 during a time of great persecution. Uh, after she had walked away from her child, her father comes to her and says, look, Perpetua, just deny Jesus. Just pay the incense that's needed, required to go to Caesar so that you can live. So that don't you want to raise your child? Don't you want to be part of our family? Don't you want to have a life? She says, to deny Jesus would be to deny everything. Uh, she was tossed into, for blood sport, the Colosseum, where then she was attacked by wild beasts. And the wild beasts weren't killing them fast enough, so they decided, let's just line them up and execute her. 22 years old, she's part of your family. Her identity, deeply rooted, not in the culture, not trying to figure out who she is. She knew she belonged to the Father because the Father elected her. Jesus saved her. The Holy Spirit is keeping her. So those of you that are in Christ, I urge you to think about the family lineage that you belong to. You are greatly, greatly loved you have a history, you have a present, and you have a future. Receive that as grace from God. As we finish, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song and close. We'll partake of communion together. So as our ushers hand out communion, you can go ahead and receive the cup. We'll partake it together. Uh, we have a song, right, Dan? Do we have a song? We've got a song. And if you're at home, it's the time for you to go ahead and grab a cracker or cookie, whatever it is that you want, and something to drink with, and we'll participate together. But this is an invitation for you in this moment. It's time for us to reflect and think about who really are you? Who do you see yourself as? Where's your life anchored into? My invitation to you would be to trust this God who's revealed himself, who's been faithful, will always be faithful, all the way through to the very end. This might be a moment to repent, to confess sin or disbelief, and re-anchor yourself into the story. So Jesus, right now we come, we bring our hearts again, as raw or vulnerable or as painful as this might feel right now or as rugged or durable as we may feel and maybe even in some cases invincible. God, we bring it all to you. We just lay it at your feet. We just declare to you our need for you. If there's any here right now, God, that, that don't know you, they're far from you. Maybe they're wrestling even with their own feelings of failure and guilt and shame. God, reveal to them that you are even greater than that guilt and shame. And you seek to clothe us with righteousness, goodness, God, that you yourself have given. So we turn our hearts to you now.